Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a very, very uh, high producing uh, real estate agent uh, who is mastering that business in the state of New Mexico. He's based in Albuquerque, uh, but he's also an investor, which I want to talk to him uh, equally about. He is none other than the CEO and founder of Faith Real Estate Group and the CEO, co-founder of Integrity Capital LLC. He is Robbie Faith. Robbie, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. Well, I, I hope you feel worthy of the intro, Robbie. Yeah, that was a very nice intro and uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Thank you. You got it. Tell me, you know, you're, you're, you're there in Albuquerque. It's like one of these places that I've never been to. I guess there are a lot of places I haven't been to, but that is definitely one of them. Uh, so my question, my first question is this, is that where the Robbie Faith story begins? Are you a native uh, New Mexico guy or what's the, ba- what's the backdrop? Yeah, um, actually I am. I'm born and raised here, spent a uh, majority of my life here to school, went to college here. Did, I did have a small time in my life where I, I moved over to Scottsdale for a short period of time and um, came back after a few months. So I mean, the purpose of that uh, was just to get my license in Arizona to do, you know, work in both markets. And I came back and I've been here ever since. I mean, this is where I'm born and raised. Um, you know, invest, all my investments are, are here in my backyard. You know, I enjoy, I enjoy the Albuquerque area. I think it's one of those cities that is just, uh, it's, it's becoming uh, more well-known and we're seeing a lot of uh, people come to this this market, but for the most part, I think it's untapped still. When you say people come into that market from where? We see a lot of people from California come in. A lot of Californians, you know, seeking higher yield um, for investments and, you know, those that aren't just buying to invest are moving over here um, and relocating. We're seeing a lot of people from, you know, the Pacific Northwest area, East Coast as well. People like this part of the country because the cost of living um, can be a lot more affordable relative to where they're coming from. In addition to that, we get beautiful weather. We have all four seasons without having anything too extreme. Um, and then the culture here is, it's a beautiful culture. And the food, of course, we've got, we're famous for the red and gray chili. So if you like spicy food, new Mexican food is not to be confused with Mexican food, completely different. Um, and people love, you know, the kind of the, all of the, the factors that we're talking about, but that, that seems to be one of the biggest reasons is cost of living and weather. You know, uh, I think probably what I love doing most about this podcast is, is just I learn things. What you just said, I didn't know any of that. And um, I, I pride myself in being informed and I read a lot and especially about real estate. I didn't realize that it was a four season city. I, for some reason, in my mind, I hadn't really thought about it, but I would have just assumed it's kind of like Arizona, but obviously I'm wrong. Is that because it's a higher elevation? Yeah, we are over 5,000 feet up. So 
we do have a higher elevation and we've got the mountains and extension of the Rockies right here in Albuquerque just goes right through it's a massive mountain structure so I mean you've got quick access to some ski slopes in the city or very close to Santa Fe is about 45 to 50 minute drive north which is the capital of New Mexico now that's a hot spot for you know the artistic world a lot of art galleries and uh, you know, people into that. They they like that spot, and then there's great skiing as well over there. So yeah, I would say because we're a high desert, you know, we get a good mix of of different uh, weather. Hmm. And I also had no idea that you know that Albuquerque was getting a lot of the in migration that you know Arizona certainly has from people coming from California, which has been going on for a long time, or Texas. I didn't realize that um, Albuquerque was one of those towns. What does it look like from the perspective of like number of cranes in the air, amount of new uh, multifamily, new office, you know, however you would describe sure. it, what's the general feel of the town? Well, I mean, if you compare, you know, Albuquerque to a massive metro like Phoenix, I mean, it's nowhere near that level of activity going on. But, you know, for us, it's the biggest development boom that we've seen. You know, things have slowed down a little bit with, you know, the rates increasing. The building has slowed down a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, within the past, you know, two to three years, we've seen a pretty major uptick in values. Um, and alongside that, there has been an increase in development, uh, more so than we've ever seen. Um, so the density is increasing. There is a shortage of housing altogether. So, you know, there is a need for multifamily. Um, and so we still see it. And, you know, I try to participate as much as I can in um, fulfilling the needs. What's the employment base? You know, there's a lot of government contracts here. We've got the National Laboratories, um, Sandia Labs, who's uh, based out of Albuquerque. Um, we have Intel. It's a major hub here and one of the sub-markets of Albuquerque in a city called Rio Rancho, very close by. And then you've got the Air Force Base, Kirtland Air Force Base. So a lot of military jobs or private jobs, um, government contracts. Um, that is a big chunk, I would say, just without understanding the, the, the full economics, just knowing what we know organically here. That's a big piece of it. And what is the population of the metro area? Right around a million. Oh, okay. So it's a nice size, you know, it's, it's a not... decent size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what would you say it was? I don't know. Twenty years ago, for the heck Oof. of it. I mean, this would be a wild guess. Um, don't have the numbers, but I mean, it's in, it's it's been steadily increasing. Now, if I were to guess, we'd have to say I don't know, seven hundred thousand in that range. Yeah, and we'll, that's we'll, a lot. I'm incorporating, you know, all the metro area. So just Albuquerque, and there's some surrounding metros that are right around us that get you know kind of incorporated into our major major metro uh, population. Okay. Here, here's a, a weird question, but I don't know why it comes to mind. And it's this, are there Whole Foods there and Trader Joe's? Yeah. <laughs> Some of my favorite stores, uh, there is Whole Foods. Um, yeah, we have both of those, several of each. Okay. Do you have a Nordstrom there? We do have a Nordstrom rack. So okay. I don't think we've quite elevated ourselves to the four-wall Nordstrom, but we've got the rack and that was a big deal for us. So we'll yeah. get what we can take. I, I understand. Okay. And when you say that you um, invest 
your all of your investments are there. Do you say specifically in Albuquerque, or does that entail more markets in New Mexico, or we're all right there? And um, Albuquerque? Albuquerque, Rio Rancho, Los Lunas is another city just south of um, Albuquerque, and so those would be the three markets that I'm in. Okay, Miss Albuquerque, Rio Rancho. All right. And when did you get into real estate and what did you do? I got into real estate. Um, so my, my first venture into real estate was 2005. Before I was a licensed realtor, I was living in the dorms at the University of New Mexico. Wanted to experience the, you know, the life outside of living at home. So I, um, I, I ventured off and stayed on campus. Did that for six months. It was like a co-living space with somebody who was living in the same room as me. And so that was not sustainable. And so at the time, you know, this was 2005, and real estate was a lot of stuff going on. And real estate was big, big in the news. It was just known at the time that it might be a good idea to buy some real estate. So I was looking around at what everybody else was doing, and that's what they were doing. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I, I bought my first home. With the help of my um, parents as a co-signer, um, and I used um, some money that I had saved up uh, as a down payment on a three-bedroom house that had a converted garage. It was not too far from the university, and uh, it needed some work. So even though it was 2005, bought it at a discounted price for the time, and I decided to to buy the house and rent out the bedroom. So I took the converted garage and made that into a bedroom and then there were two additional bedrooms. So it was essentially, you know, three roommates that I brought in um, with me living in one of the rooms and I was living, you know, rent-free. Didn't even really think about it. That was about $400 positive cash flow every month. And I thought it was pretty cool. So that's my first experience with real estate, owning the real estate. Um, and then in 2008, uh, I decided I wanted to buy I wanted to get more, you know, invested in real estate. And I was going to school for entrepreneurial studies. And I, you know, my vision was to continue to be a real estate investor. So it gave me the motivation to look for a second property. Um, in 08, you know, this was, of course, timing was very interesting. And I found a seller finance deal that I was able to purchase for low money down with the intent of trying to flip it. I couldn't flip it. I just did not have enough budget save to put it on the open market and carry the debt service for the amount of time that may have been necessary. So I wasn't able to sell it. I converted it to a rental property because my time was up. Um, and you know that was really kind of the start of my small investment portfolio. Um, and I did not get intentional about buying real estate you know, for a few years later. That was just kind of me dabbling around. And I decided that you know this was the path I wanted to commit to. And I was very intentional about it. And in 2016, the present is when the bulk of my portfolio has been purchased. How were you paying the bills in that interim period between, let's say, 08 and 16? And let, let, me, let me guess what you paid for your first property in 05. Don't tell me I'm going to guess, I'm going to go low just for the heck of it. 95 grand. That's low. I wish I would have okay. paid 95 okay. grand. I paid, <laughs> I paid 150 grand for the property. Okay. You know, at the time, I remember these numbers. We thought the comps were around 180. Or we did work. Um, and so I still own this property today. I just kept it, held on to most everything that I've purchased. 
um, unless I bought it with the intention of reselling it. But 150000 was the cost of the first. And as far as what I was doing, kind of pertains to, you know, the idea of letting the rooms out. I was in food and beverage. I was a, I was a busser. I started off as a busser, bussing tables, and then I did to-go. I was a to-go specialist, and then I graduated up to becoming a waiter. And so the whole time when I was in college, I was in food and beverage. I just recruited the people that were working with me in a variety of different restaurants that I was at to uh, be my roommates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get it. I, I was a busboy and I never, I never got promoted beyond busboy. I never made it to waiter. <laughs> but that, there's that's still a, time. But yeah, <laughs> there's still uh-huh. time. I still don't think I'm qualified. So is that what you did up until like, like when did you become in real estate full time? Yeah. Uh, I got licensed to become a realtor in 2009. Right after that attempted flip fail in 2008, realizing that, you know, I liked real estate. It probably made sense for me to get licensed because if I buy or sell something, I can make or, or save the commission. Um, and so I jumped in in 2009 at a very volatile time within real estate and positioned myself to work with a brokerage that was focused on distressed assets. They had a big contract with Fannie Mae, Wells Fargo. They were doing a lot of short sales. And so kind of cut my teeth in the distressed market on a team. And I just built my business um, working on the team for about five years. And in 2015, uh, I decided to go on my own. Simultaneously, I owned another business that uh, uh, was not real estate related. It was a home business franchise that I um, bought in 2011, built while I was working as a realtor simultaneously. 2015, I had an exit, sold it, made some money. And so that gave me some seed money um, and the confidence um, to be able to go out in 2016 and just start getting very purposeful about you know investing in real estate. So 16 is when things really started picking up that I, I would actively accumulate real estate on a regular basis starting in 2016. Precious timing. What, just that curiosity, even if it wasn't business, what was that franchise? It's a Sears garage door franchise. And kind of fell in my lap. It was a friend of mine who had it in New York, came out here, opened this one up, and he was the owner operator. He hired one employee to kind of free himself up from some of the um, you know, the duties as a technician. And that's what uh, he was ready to go back to New York. Still one of my best friends. Keep in touch with the day. Bought it from him and grew the company um, from about one to about eight employees. We had, you know, service. We were servicing the, the greater state of New Mexico. Um, and then in 2015, uh, towards the end of the year, uh, decided that uh, it was time while Sears was, you know, still stable, decided that it might be a good time to sell it and ended up selling it very quickly. Interesting, man. You're a hustler. It sounds cool. Okay. And so in 16, what, what is the nature, Robbie, of, the, of your portfolio? Is the lion's share of it multifamily or is it other asset classes? What's the, what's the overall picture? You know, I, I'd like to uh, envision myself as kind of an asset agnostic investor. So we've got a variety of different types of assets and got anywhere, got a bunch of single family homes, 
I've got quite a few small multifamily properties, which I would classify in the two to four unit range. I've got several mobile home parks, larger, uh, medium, several, you know, medium size, one, one medium size and one larger, I would say. And then a third one is one that uh, I've got a group that we are actively developing a new mobile home park. Um, I own self-storage um, and also working on a developing kind of a mixed-use um, warehouse in Albuquerque. And then a little bit of retail on the side with another commercial partner. Sure, you're busy. Yeah, got a lot going on, but you know, I've been able to strategically partner so that I don't have to take on, you know, the the workload of everything. I don't I couldn't do it all on my own. But, you know, the the single family, small multifamily is all cell phoned and um the mobile home parks are and everything else are partnerships. What does that mean, cell phoned? Um, self owned. Owned by myself. <laughs> <laughs> like I never yeah. heard that term before. Ah, what? You run it yeah. all on a cell phone? Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. All right. How, how many how, approximately what's the size of that portfolio bef- between the houses and the small multis? About, you know, if you were to count storage, um, 339 rental units. Damn. Uh, how, 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 what percent is storage? It's a good chunk of it. We've got like 250. At that facility. Damn. And so do you have friends and family investors or is that just all you? Well, that one is um, was actually a partnership. Um, I did not have experience in self-storage. You know, I pride myself on my relationships and my ability to connect people um, and my ability to, you know, kind of put the pieces together and not very experienced. I have an understanding on how to underwrite um, multifamily and self-storage, but there's some nuance to it. And I, I guess I would say that I, I know enough to know that I probably shouldn't be doing it on my own. So I brought in an expert and we are taking it down together. Got it. So you're in the process of taking it down. Well, we purchased it. And so now it's just in the process of getting stabilized. I see. Wow. How old was it? Uh, about December last year closed on it. How old is the facility? The facility? Oh, 1950s. Oh, so it's old. Yeah, well, I should not say that. No, I think it was, it's in a very old part of Albuquerque on the Route 66 on Central Avenue. Uh, but it was, uh, it was developed, I believe it was actually in the 70s. I think it was owned by them prior to that and it was redeveloped in the 70s. So it's old, but it's in really good shape. And the partner you brought on, are they? Is that somebody that has a lot of experience in yeah. in self storage and just in that market, or is that kind of, or, or are they in other markets as well? Like how they're in multiple markets, as far as I know, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and probably more. I'm a very prolific self storage investor. What is your role in that deal? Did you basically find the deal, and you know, I teed it up. And I was able to, you know, bring the parties together. Uh, the deal was negotiated and, you know, I was able to get some equity for bringing the deal together. And I also invested some capital. In. I see. Cool. And then you'll have, you know, you'll have a, a front row seat to how the thing runs exactly. inevitably. And, yeah, and you'll learn. Precisely. That is exciting. Uh, how did how did that deal materialize? How did you find out about it? So that particular deal um, is a, f- a family member of mine. It uh, 
my father-in-law who his father built it. And it was uh, was something that they've been talking about selling for a number of years. And it's been a legacy asset for the family. It's performed very well, family business. You know, this is uh, something that I've been around this particular asset. I mean, I've, I've been in the family for the better part of 20 years. I grew up and married my high school sweetheart. So I've been around okay. this family for a long time. So I've been, I've witnessed it, you know, and, and when they were getting ready to sell it, you know, I was just trying to find a way to keep it in the family, you know, because I wanted it to be part of the legacy that, you know, we bring uh, our kids in, into. And so we were, I was able to have an advantage in that, in that regard and, you know, have some influence on what, you know, the exit was going to be. And of course, my father-in-law would like to see it in the family as well. So the hard part was, I mean, he was getting unsolicited offers literally on a weekly basis. And I thought that was an exaggeration until we started getting serious about talking about it. And he would send me LOIs, you know, from people all over the country. I mean, it's incredible the amount of activity we get on an asset like that. But, you know, he's, he's a very fair man. And I, I wanted to stay out of the negotiation, truthfully, because it was family. I wanted to keep that arm's length and let the two kind of work it out. And so, you know, I put it together and let them meet and it turned out to be a good fit. And, you know, as a byproduct, I, you know, I wanted to partake in it and was able to. So turned out, turned out well um, in terms of at least keeping the asset in the family. And, you know, we're hoping that it will be a good investment. So far, it's been, it's been pretty good. So how do you then, so if you, and then so you identified a buyer, I'm assuming is what you're saying, how do you get equity out of it? You know, there was a little bit of consideration given to me because I'm the one who brought the opportunity to the investor who's actively looking for these types of assets. So there's that. And then, of course, I was able, there was capital, an investment capital that was needed to, for the purchase. Got it. So I was brought in, I was allowed to bring money in to the deal to you know, become a partner to it. So, and I just get into specifics, so just bear with me is like you said uh, earlier that you're getting LOIs, you said on a weekly basis. So is the ultimately was the acquirer somebody that you brought in apart from the LOIs that were proactively yes, reaching correct. out? Okay. That's correct. So essentially, I was talking to my father-in-law and I said, look, I've got an individual who um, buys self-storage. I don't know if it's going to be a good fit, but why don't you take the meeting and let's meet with them and see how it goes. And it developed into, you know, consecutive two, three more meetings and several more conversations that led to the purchase. I got it. And where are they based? Here, actually, in Albuquerque. Okay. Yeah, it's a I local investor. It. I got it. Okay. I understand. Interesting. Tell me about the mobile home parks because that's yeah. a great business too. So what's your... Love that what, business. Yeah. What's your uh, involvement there? So in 2000. Oh, 2018, I think I started educating myself on mobile home parks. You know, I listened to all the podcasts, um, Bigger Pockets. Kevin Bupp is uh, a very active investor in that space and listened to his podcast and kind of educated myself through podcasts. You know, as a realtor, what are we doing all day? We're driving around from, one, from point A to point B. And so there's the opportunity to create kind of a mobile university within your vehicle. And so... All I would do is never, never, never listen to music. It was just made sense for me just to educate all the time. And so this is kind of a mentality that I have, but became interested in 
mobile home parks. In 2019, early 2019, I just decided that I was going to start prospecting for them. And I did the same way that I prospect for business as a realtor, which is just obtain a database and just cold call. And so I started calling the list. And the second conversation that I had when asked, hey, are you interested in selling? It was a yes. And so it was not quite that easy. It took some time to nurture that relationship. And about 10 months later, I was able to purchase the property and that was with another partner. And that was a phenomenal deal. We bought it in late 2019, incredible seller financing terms. It came as a package with another, I think it was about 13 units apartment complex that was on a different parcel adjacent to it. Um, We got some great seller financing terms closed on that. Uh, A few months into it, we just started Doing, uh, implementing our business plan, just adding value to the community. We fixed some potholes on the pavement, cut down a bunch of overgrown trees. Um, we also um, installed water meters on each of the homes so that we could build back the water to the tenant, which was a major increase in NOI for us. Um, and then shortly after, you know, doing a few things. And um, we also, you know, simultaneously did a rent increase over the course of time. It wasn't all at once. And about a year later, we refinanced it and were able to get, you know, all of our initial capital back out. And so it's, we still own it today. And so it's a fantastic um, asset to own. And that was like the start to the mobile home park. And how many paths are in that uh, facility? There's about 58 total units, including the, including the uh, 13 that were multifamily. That's been sold off. So there was also some initial, another windfall of capital that was returned after the, the selling off of that piece. And so now I think we're in the mid 40 range on that. And it's something, you know, it's one of those legacy assets that the plan is to hold as long as, as long as we can. Yeah, why not? In terms of your, your agency business, so do you own an agency where you have realtors working for you or like what, what exactly, how would you describe that? Sure. So I worked at Keller Williams in Albuquerque. Um, and so I operate as if I have my own brokerage without having the exposure and liability. Um, I essentially have my own team here. I hang my license here. So I don't own my own brokerage, but I, I am an owner of my team, which is a small team. There's about four of us. Um, in addition to me. And, you know, my specialty is investment real estate. However, you know, having done uh, transactions, hundreds and hundreds of transactions over the course of, you know, 15 years, uh, we've got, you know, just normal buyers and sellers that we're working with. But, you know, our specialty right now is in addition to that, working with investors on finding assets to purchase. And it creates kind of a reoccurring revenue for us as we build relationships with investors who want to do you know, more than one transaction. So that's one division of my real estate team. I have another division of my real estate team where we um, have an acquisition team. And the intent of the marketing that we do for that is to buy assets. Initially, is you know our, our intent is always to buy the assets. Um, but in, invariably, there's product out there that we're able to, to contract at good pricing that doesn't fit our buy box, so we'll wholesale it. So there's a wholesaling division that I have of my team 
as well, but separate from Keller Williams. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I run it. I just, I, I see this business and real estate um, as a more of a holistic approach to real estate where we can service the needs of, of really every, every seller. You know, if we can find a way where it makes sense for us to own it, and it also happens to work for the seller, then we, we try to, you know, wear our investor hat as much as we can. In a lot of cases, it just cannot make things work for us to buy it directly from the seller. And so the solution would then be we can still assist you with selling it. Um, we have a top 1% team here in Albuquerque. So we do a lot of transactions and so we'll, you know, sell it on the open market for them. Uh, these four guys that work for you, do they, they sell any houses or no? Zero. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they, they do. There's business that has been generated usually from my sphere or leads that, that we acquire, and then we'll distribute them to the team. Okay. And then in addition, they'll bring you know, their own organic business to the team and we'll work it together. And then on the commercial stuff, you know, the stuff that's not, let's define that as stuff that's not single family. I get that they're, you correct me if I'm wrong, I get that they're, you know, they're getting listings, right, from, from sellers, but they're also finding properties for investors. Is that correct? Um, yes. The goal would be, first and foremost, to see if it makes sense for us to own it, because that's the, you know, the objective is to own as much of the real estate as possible. Okay. And if it doesn't work out, then yeah, we would attend, we would attempt to try to find um, another investor who it could work for, then we can make an assignment fee. Yeah, they're bird dogging for you for stuff for you to that you want to buy and yeah and, and run okay and to some degree you know we've got it, it's a whole separate business so there's a you know we've got a marketing budget we're doing a lot of outbound and inbound marketing um, we've got an acquisitions person who's the one who handles the calls as they come in and takes them through our process and then you know just qualifies them and if it's something that you know fits the criteria for us then. Or not, in either case, they're going to get an offer from us. And then at that point, once we have it under contract, we just determine what are we going to do with it. Is it for the profile something that we could own long term? No. Okay. And then we would take a look and see if it, it made sense for us to find another investor to step into our shoes and we can generate an assignment fee off of it. And the other thought process is we are uniquely positioned and have the unfair advantage as realtors to be able to purchase properties that still make sense for a seller. We're being very transparent about what pricing, what the, the values are. Part of our script is, is actually just being so transparent and honest with people that, hey, if you want to sell on the open market and your goal is to net the most amount of money, this is what you should do. We can list it. You'll be this number. However, you don't want to go the traditional sales route and you're willing to trade price for speed and convenience. We could be your buyer. Um, and we'd be at this number. And so we give them that option. Um, and then really, um, we would, you know, let them make the decision. Our number, if they decide to go with us, if we're not going to list it and they want us to be the buyer, we'll decide if we will be the buyer ourselves or we bring in a cash partner who we assign it to. In some cases, I'll buy it and we'll flip it. In other cases, um, we'll buy it and just hold on to it. Um, so there's multiple exits that we have for that business. So in the scenario, if you buy and assign, are you buying it contingent on you finding a buyer or are you closing? We, in most cases, will assign prior to closing unless it's a transaction 
or a deal that makes, if it makes sense for us, in some cases we'll double close, but it's not typical. Generally, we're, we're purchasing with the intent. If it doesn't fit our buy box and we know we're not going to close on it, then we're looking for another investor to step in and we'll assign it without ever having taken title, without ever closing on it. And what, how would you describe your buy box? You know, we're looking for right now, the, the biggest driver is cash flow. Um, you know, and there's certain price points that I want to be at or under. So, you know, an ideal scenario is you know, the medium home sale price in Albuquerque, which could be interesting for, uh, for this conversation, around 330, 340. Okay. Now, as, as a realtor, I know that the market is still moving. It's, there's, there's been some slowdown. And so as an investor, I'm just always trying to understand what my downside risk is. And I understand that being at a higher price point, there's fewer buyers. So I like my ARV, my after repair value to be under 400,000 and truthfully less if possible. Um, there's a sweet spot of like 375 or under is just is fantastic because there's just a larger pool of buyers, which means less risk for me. Um, so if I'm going to buy it to hold on to it, you know, for a single family house, I want a net net in my pocket about 400 bucks a month after all operating expenses. And so I'm, I'm underwriting these deals with repair and maintenance allocations, property management, you know, of course, taxes and insurance and all associated costs built in as expenses. If I can net after all that $400 on a single family um, and I can get a 15% return on my money or more, then it's a, it's a go for me. Um, there's cases that we can do better than that and the cases that we, you know, where it's tight or it might be in a location where it's going to be a higher risk uh, and something like that. Whatever the factor is, we then might take it to our pool of buyers and ask them if, you know, knowing what our investors will pay, we know what could be in their buy box and we'll take it to them and it still works for them. Um, and we can still monetize the opportunity and get paid a fee for pairing the two together. In, in a scenario where you assign the contract to somebody else, uh, naive question, but are you assigning pretty much just other investors or could it be to owner-occupiers? Generally, we're working with investors. In a rare occasion, it will be to an owner-occupant. Right. That makes sense. And then I guess out of the deals that you do, where it's that model, where it's a, an assignment, right? Because it doesn't fit your buy box. What percentage of those transitions are single family versus commercial? Majority of them are single family, I would say. We've done one commercial deal this year. So 99% residential. Great, great business model. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not my own. It's something that I've seen other investors do. So I can't say that I'm the genius behind it, but... Hey, it makes sense. Uh, and this is something that I teach and coach on all the time. It's just realtors and or investors, we're, they're trained just to do one thing. And I just, I think it makes sense to have versatility just so you can create more value for a consumer or a seller. Um, and it allows us to fully monetize the opportunities. And so we're building a whole business model up on this. And the next piece is the lending business. Um, I've done some hard money lending over the years and wanting to really focus in on that business um, and it can pair nicely. It's just a, a symbiotic relationship with, this, with these other businesses where we can offer a product to an investor, get the wholesale fee, and then if it you know, fits our criteria on the lending side and they have you know, the financial wherewithal to meet our lending criteria, then we can lend on the deal as well. 
And in some cases, it might make more sense to do that versus take on the flip ourselves where you've got more risk. Tell me if I'm understanding the Robbie, the current Robbie Faith scenario accurately based on what we've discussed so far. What I'm gleaning is that the, correctly or not, that's why I'm going to see if I understand it, is that the lion's share of your endeavors today are pretty much what you described, which is the, the acquisition of single families and then, uh, and then flipping them essentially. On the commercial side of the business where you'll, you know, you'll take a piece, you'll find partners with a lot of operational experience in that vertical, whether it be multifamily, whether it be self-storage, seems to be not what you're spending most of your day-to-day activity, but it's kind of like opportunistic. You're from Albuquerque, you've been there the lion's share of your, of your life and just by virtue of what you do. You, you do come across opportunities from time to time. And then you, when you do, you will pursue them and try and kind of put deals together. Is that, is that an accurate assessment? I'd say it's spot on. You know, and hearing you say it, <laughs> you know, truthfully, I feel that it needs to be reversed. You know, I, I would like to spend more time in commercial asset acquisition. But I'm in the growth building mode right now, the other businesses. And so my time is invested largely in, in the retail side and um, on the wholesale side and uh, residential side in general. But yeah, I would say that's accurate. Mm-hmm. When, I'm, when I get a, there is, there is some time I try to carve out specifically searching for these commercial acquisitions. They don't just follow my lot. It has been, um, relentless follow up to put majority of the commercial deals together, and and truthfully, all you know, the best deals that I've ever purchased, they take a lot of time, a lot of nurturing before we get to that point. So it's certainly not an overnight thing, um, but yeah, I would say that sounds about accurate. And when you say, "Well, okay, I appreciate that," so we're on the same page in terms of like on the commercial side, they take a lot of time and a lot of nurturing. Like, why is that? So like, to me, it's like, okay, if I own a mobile home park and let's say I've owned it for 40 years and I'm now 75 or 80 years old and it's like, I I just don't want to deal with the tenants anymore. Maybe my wife passed away or, you know, it was some event, right? And I'm ready to call it quits. It's probably something I've been thinking about. So from that perspective, why do these things take the amount of time and nurturing that they do as opposed to, hey, I'm ready, Robbie, you're a great guy. And, you know, our kids grew up, to, you know, uh, my, you know, you've known my kid for 30 years, let's just do it. You know, like, yeah. well, give me the, the, you know, the, why, why these things are time consuming. There's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes it, sometimes it, they, it happens quickly. And what I say it can take time. It wasn't specific to commercial. And there's just deal, putting deals together in general. You, know, you can get lucky and sometimes we'll have a conversation with somebody that turns into a contract and it turns into a purchase. And then other times, you know, you know that there is underlying motivation to sell. It's just the timing's not right. And so most people give up because if it doesn't work then or maybe the subsequent three other attempts that they make, then that's it. They forget about it. But one of my superpowers, if I were to say I have a superpower, it's just I don't give up. I have a relentless persistence 
Um, and, you know, there's deals that I put together now um, that are a result of multiple years of follow-up. So it's not that it can be difficult. It's just that I don't give up on them. I just continue to maintain contact with people who I feel are general, genuinely want to sell. And if you stay in touch long enough and it's inevitable, it's going to happen. Got it, man. You're, you're telling my whole life story there in another industry, but you're telling my life story. Really? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you after we, we stop recording. Okay. It's not that interesting, but but I, I'm happy to to share it with you. Um, what would you say, um, you know, because I find what you what you're doing is actually very interesting. What what would you say are key lessons that you've learned? Oh, I would, you know, go back to what we just talked about. I mean, Here's here's the number one point. We get a lot of people who just find what I do very obscure. There's realtors who just can't wrap their head around how to build a business around something other than just being a realtor. And you know, the lesson that I've learned there is you've got to ask the right questions. They most people just don't ask the right questions. And so, for instance, when I'm going into a listing appointment, as I mentioned to you earlier, the objective is always try to find a way to make it work for a seller and make it work for me to purchase the property from them. And so I'm just changing the conversation. I'm asking questions such as, do you feel like if we were to sell this for you today, that you your objective, would it be to net the most amount of money or would you consider selling it at a price that is less than market value if you could get it done much faster and not have to worry about making any repairs and not going on the open market and having to show it to a couple dozen people. You know, these are some of the questions that I ask when I'm taking on a listing and I bought several properties this way when we then find out that the real underlying motivation is that perhaps they don't want to go on the open market and they would be willing to discount the price in trade for the convenience factor. So it's asking the right questions is definitely a big lesson. Um, and the other one, of course, is you know just having um, the persistence to never give up. It's just I've trained myself and conditioned myself that it's you know we kind of gamify it in a way where we actually like, go for no. I ask people, I invite them, tell me no if this is something that you're not interested in because there's so many other people that I can talk to about, and let's not waste your time or my time. Inviting them to letting me disappear out of my life and. I'll gauge interest from that. If it's, no, I, I want to sell. It's just, I'm not ready. And, and then it just gives me the, you know, the confidence to just continue to pursue. And so the big lesson is, man, whatever you want, so cliche to hear myself say this right now, but if you just don't give up on it, then it's bound to, bound to come to fruition. Do you, how many conversations do you have? Now, let me try and understand this. How many homes how many times does the conversation go, well, you know what, Robbie, I appreciate yeah. your transparency. Um, no, I'd rather, uh, I, I want to put it on the market and get as much as I can. And um, like, how, like how, how does that, like, how often is that versus you getting a discount and being able to flip it to another and wholesale it? Majority of the time. It's that, no, it just it doesn't, or it could be that, yeah, I am interested about what would the price be. And then there's a disconnect between what they think it should be and what it would work for for an investor. Now, my mindset has kind of shifted a little bit on this because of the you know, this, uh, rate hikes that have been happening with interest rates where they're at right now. One of our main 
interest in purchasing, uh, our purchasing method is becoming seller financing and always the most exciting to me. So there are circumstances where if we have a seller who needs to get her market price of $365,000, and if I can offer her her, her market price of $365,000 and, and trade for that, I get really good terms, meaning, you know, great seller financing terms, a good amount of time to hold on to the property and generate cash flow. If they have an underlying interest rate that is very palatable, you know, majority of the interest rates right now in the marketplace are that exist in the marketplace are 4% interest or under. That's the majority of the mortgages that are out there. And it just presents a major opportunity for an investor, not just to be the one trick pony of a cash buyer, but also to have the versatility and the know-how to be able to have an intelligent conversation about seller financing, why it could be beneficial to a seller and how it could also work for us as buyers. Um, so majority of the time, it doesn't work. But you know, you don't need to be, you don't need to be getting yeses 95% of the time. If I can get two to five percent, then I'm adding, you know, assets to my portfolio on a regular basis. And that compounds over time. Cash flow increases as rents go up organically over time. And so that's how you do it. It's one transaction at a time. How have you learned to do what you do in terms of creative financing? Yeah, as a realtor, you know, I just was very interested. And actually, that's a good question. This has come up before, but that second purchase, the, the attempted flip uh, fail in 2008 was seller finance deal. And I would say, you know, that was probably a result of my father um, educating me a little bit on the possibilities. I was just very hungry in 2008. I would go around, call all the signs. I didn't know what creative finance was, but that was the question. Is your seller open to creative finance? No. Is your seller open to creative finance? No. And then when you get a yes, it's like, oh, okay, well, what does that mean? And so um, through multiple conversations and some education from my father, I kind of understood the concept of it, the mechanics of it, I learned as a realtor. What does your dad do? My dad was is a real estate investor. Uh, he's bought and sold many houses over the years. Um, he is a retired pharmacist slash screenplay writer. He's a very talented screenplay writer. And he, he's here in Albuquerque. Did he start out in Albuquerque? Nope. He's from um, Orange County area, California. Oh, oh, see, I was going to guess New York because you sound like you have a very small accent to me, which sounds like you're from New York, but it might be just a very distinct New Mexico accent. Either yeah. that or I'm hallucinating. <laughs> Not sure. I hear it from time to time. I think it's kind of just a, um, I don't know, just uh, the way I am. It's kind I of sound it. like that. Very interesting. How does one find out more about what you're doing and how, how do they engage and it's their, you sure. know, want to find something to invest in, et cetera? So um, best way to reach out to me is on Instagram. Um, I do uh, create content. My handle is... Um, at Robbie Faith Realtor. Instagram is a great way to connect with me. Uh, you can direct message me there. Um, and that's probably the best place. One more. I'm going to circle back. I'm going to take a step backwards. In the single family home business, what percent of the ones that you acquire would you say that, well, that's the wrong way of phrasing it, the interactions that you're involved in, what percent 
do you put end up just representing a seller in a traditional way where you list the home and do the dog and pony and get them the highest price versus how many do you wholesale versus how many do you keep for yourself as an mm. investment? Good one. Um, I do over 100, well, over 100 transactions a year on the retail side. Um, on the wholesale side, it we're at about 40 for the year um, in terms of properties that are actually being assigned. Uh, so hope to get that around 60 by the end of the year. That's a projection in terms of what I buy. You know, the goal is uh, one month, one to two a month to, to hold on to. Um, and sometimes I meet that and sometimes I, I don't. Um, it averages out. Um, and sometimes I exceed that. You know, the, the transition now for me is trying to focus more on commercial assets, just understanding that the best use of my time, the highest and best use of my time is, is probably now spent finding assets that have a higher potential, higher yield. Look, I love what you do. And uh, you're a smart guy and you're a hard worker and you put one foot in front of the other. There's, I, I get the sense there's some humility and uh, you'll do whatever you want to do because you're, you're, like you said, you're, you're relentless. So. Fantastic, man. I very much appreciate it. And I, and I hope to circle back and have another conversation uh, in a year or so. Roger, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I appreciate you having me on. And you I'll got it. circle back. We'll do it again. Okay. All right, All right Robbie. <laughs>